Coming to you from Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we welcome two amazing guests. I'm so excited. Can you tell? I'm so excited. (laughs) We have Reverend Jennifer Butler, who is the author of the amazing book with the most amazing title I've ever heard, Who Stole My Bible? Reclaiming Scripture as a Handbook for Resisting Tyranny. Hello, somebody. Jennifer helps readers discover how the Bible, from Genesis to Revelations, is a liberating handbook for finding your voice for overcoming authoritarianism. And she's also the author of Born Again, The Christian Right Globalized, which calls for a religious response to global culture wars of the religious right. And she's also the executive director of Faith in Public Life, which is based in Washington, D.C., which I'm also affiliated with. And they have an incredible Listen to Black Women's campaign going on right now. But anyway, thank you so much for joining us um, today, Jennifer. It's so much. It's fun to have you. It's such an honor to be here. And I'm just so excited for this conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, so we are also joined by Reverend Renee August creator and co-facilitator of the How to Decolonize the Bible series at Freedom Road Institute. Reverend August is is a public theologian, an organizer, and a consultant who is sought after literally around the world. But she's based in Cape Town, South Africa, where she grew up in apartheid South Africa and has been a part of that transition ever since. On January 6th, white Christian nationalists stormed the U.S. Capitol and revealed the breadth and depth of the distortion of Christianity in the U.S. Men and women in that crowd occupy every level of American society, and many are leaders in their churches, even pastors. We have all witnessed the rising claim that the religious right has on evangelical faith. We all witnessed the fruit of that claim on January 6th, as men and women took violent action against Capitol Police officers and hunted for members of Congress with Christian symbols on their t-shirts and on their signs. Yet, we've also witnessed the rise of a movement that is challenging the religious rights claim on the scripture around the world. One important resource is Jennifer's new book, Who Stole My Bible? Another resource is Renee's series at Freedom Road. So I've invited both Jennifer and Renee to talk to us today on Freedom Road to help us to lean deeper into our sacred texts in a way that is truer to the author's intended meaning and more relevant for our challenges today. We would love to hear your thoughts on this. I'm serious. I know you have thoughts. I know you got thoughts on this. So please tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road US or Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. We actually broke a really awesome milestone a few months back and we forgot to share share the good news. But we now have a listenership of thousands every single month. It's really exciting. All right, let's jump in. First, can you just tell us the story of the very first time that you encountered the Bible? I love that question. I've been thinking <laughs> about that question too, yeah. because when I was writing my book, I often went back to what I first thought as a child upon reading these stories. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I remember my first Bible. I grew up in a United Methodist church, all white on Peachtree Street in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. They give us a Bible in first grade and it was a big deal. It had your name embossed on it. And it had a red cover and it just felt like a big transition life moment for me. And I remember opening that Bible and there were pictures of what we called the Holy Land, right? There are pictures of sheep grazing on mountainsides and Jesus tomb. Mm -hmm. 
And I remember as a six-year-old asking my parents, how did we get pictures from Jesus time? (laughs) There was no camera. I was literally thinking that. I was like, are these pictures or paintings? I didn't. So I'm glad you, you clarified. There were photographs. So of course there were photographs of all of the sites you can visit in modern day Israel, Palestine. And yet my young brain was trying to put together the facts of like, how did we get this book? And how do we know mm-hmm. it's true? And where do these stories come from? And they're very old, but how did they get passed down to us? Mm-hmm. And those were the questions I sat with as a child, continually asked through Sunday school and would ask after church in the car on the way home. And nobody could answer those questions. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Bible is the word of God. Does that literally mean that God dictated it to somebody and that person wrote <laughs> it down? How do we know where these stories came from? Which gets really important to why I wrote my book, of course, because yeah, we often don't understand that in the Bible, these stories were written in a particular cultural context. And if we don't understand that context, we actually miss the whole meaning of the story. We sure don't. We, <laughs> oh, we are going to get into that. We are so going to get into that. Thank you so much. Really, Jen. Wow. What a beautiful image of this little girl in a car holding a red book and saying, wait a minute, where'd these pictures come from? <laughs> Wow. How about you, Renee? How about you? I was giggling to myself because I too had uh, my great-grandmother, whom I shared a bed with, had a Bible that had photographs in it, glossy paper, but the photographs were in black and white. And she would tell me the stories and all I wanted to do was color them in. So I had my crayons and I was like, please, can I color in these pictures? And she would try and explain to me, we don't color in these books. This is your coloring book. This is a special book. It's a Bible. And I just couldn't understand that. So I kept on asking, (laughs) so when can I color in the picture? And she was a smart lady. So she told me, if you can tell me the story, I will let you color in the picture. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And you know that old hymn, Tell Me the Old, Old Story? It's just, it so reminds me of my relationship with her because she would be doing something. And I'm like, please read me that story again because I wanted to learn it so that I could color in the pictures. Yeah. And yeah, so that's my earliest memory. That's a great metaphor for what you already do today, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, that's so true. That's true. Your focus on the story, on the narrative. Okay. So Renee, what was your first encounter with the power of the scripture? That happened not too long after my Hmm. great-grandmother passed. We were at church in Mitchell's Plain, which is a colored township in South Africa. And... We had different preachers because we were Methodist. The local preacher society were those who took responsibility for preaching every Sunday. Mm -hmm. And some people would preach politics from the pulpit. (gasps) And others would in some way disapprove of that. Mm. And so... Our family lunches, which always included aunties and uncles and cousins and many people, the adult conversation at the table was always a reflection on the sermon. And there were members of my family who did not believe that the Bible and politics went together. And there were others in my family who believed that the Bible requires us to be involved in politics, especially to be vocal about the government and the apartheid system. Yeah, let me just say real quickly. This is in the context of apartheid. This yeah, is not yeah. theoretical. This is a question of does the Bible matter to apartheid? Yeah. Wow. Okay, keep going. Wow. And so there were there was this expression in Afrikaans, water or akers, which mm. is God's waters flows over God's land. And in other words, like we don't get involved in politics. God is sovereign. And God's waters will flow where it must. And there were others who were just like, are you telling me this is God's dream for the world? Are you nuts? Oh, wow. And when it got too heated, like my great-grandmother, my grandmother would always step in and 
try and calm everyone down and remind us that actually irrespective of what we believe, how we love one another is the most important thing. And we just need to remember that and treat each other with love. But I know Romans 13 was a very important text that got quoted regularly about, you know, submitting to the government as if to God. And I had an uncle who who would say, yeah, but who wrote that? <laughs> who wrote that? And where was Paul writing from? Right. Prison. And why was he in prison? For disobeying the government. So that was very formative for me as a child, realizing that who reads the Bible it gets to interpret what it means. Mm-hmm. And there's more than one way to understand one particular passage. And so I was always curious as to what it was that caused some people to believe one thing and other people using the same passage to believe something completely different. And I love how you talk about, you haven't mentioned it here, but I know you will, lenses, the lenses that you read the text with determine Mm -hmm. what you see. And I think that story you just told is really informative there. And so it strikes me, there might be, as you just said, you can read the same text and get different things from it. But a lot of it has to do with the lenses that you put on, right? Absolutely. I love a quote from Dan Jones, who's a historian. He says, what is not what you're looking at, but what you're looking with. Jen, how about you? What's your first encounter with the power of the scripture? I think it would be in high school when I was coming of age and deciding whether or not this faith that I had been reared in was the faith that I would choose for myself. And Mm -hmm. I was deeply concerned about uh, nuclear holocaust. This was the 1980s and we were on the brink of nuclear war. We've forgotten that era, right? And some (laughs) of us were born after that era. This was uh, a time in which there were all kinds of docudramas coming out about nuclear Armageddon, basically, that uh, this Cold War and arms race between the U.S. and Russia and that we might mutually destroy each other. And to me, I think that was partly a a symbol of the brokenness of humanity, you know, as coming to terms with the kind of world that we lived in. And I also was a product of newly integrated Atlanta public schools. This is the 1970s. Now, Atlanta didn't really integrate its public schools until 20 years after Brown versus Board of Education. Gosh. We have to remember that, right? Like this, wow. these history timelines are really important and it's something yeah. that I've really gone back to. And I didn't know that, but it had been a huge controversy and a lot of our friends and family members had pulled their kids out of public schools. My family decided to leave me in. Huh. And so I was taught entirely by Black women my entire elementary school career and then was shifted into what I now know was more of a Christian private segregation academy in the South for high school. So I'm going back and unpacking family history now around that. It is so deep. This happened to you, not like history. This is our friend. This is yesterday. Yeah, this is. is, And it's my own history that I didn't even know. Right. So often, especially those of us who come from privilege, don't even know our history because it's hidden from us. Right. Right. And so now I can rewind the tapes of my history. At the time, I was also beginning to realize that racism was not a thing of the past. It was alive and well, and it was alive and well in my family and in my neighborhood. Uh I had black friends that I wanted to bring home from school. And my mom was very supportive but she was worried about the neighbors. And so she gave me some coaching about what to do if there were any problems. So I began to realize that this was not Martin Luther King. You know, when you're a child, like five, 10 years ago, it seems like a long time, right? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. Wait, context. That's true. MLK had just been assassinated six years before you went into that school. There you go. Oh my God. There you go. And we wow. have this triumphalist way of teaching history, right? Sometimes with good reason, because we want people to think that we've overcome. Look where we've come. Look where we're going. We have this really positive, progressive view of history. Right. But what I needed to know was, and and these, you know, we're celebrating Black History Month and I have Black teachers who are really helping me, you know, celebrate and understand that. 
My brothers would call Martin Luther the king. That was how they they thought of him. And yet our history was still very much with us. And so here I'm grappling with that. So coming back to the Bible, I'm saying, Jesus, do I know you are who people tell me you are? And should I follow you? And should I commit myself to this? I read Luke chapter four, where Jesus gives his mission statement. Mm -hmm. I've come to bring good news to the poor and freedom to the oppressed. Mm -hmm. And that is the scripture as a young teenager struggling in this new all white school, feeling like an outcast somewhat myself, even though I had a lot of privilege, also grappling with the corruption of the world around me and the hypocrisy and the disconnect between what I was seeing in the world around me and what I was hearing about in church. That mission statement is one I committed myself to. And I said, Jesus, I don't know if you're real, but I commit myself to following this path. And I assume I'll find out more about this as I walk this path. So the scripture literally shaped your life trajectory. It did. My God, I just got chills. Wow. So Jen, what was your most significant encounter with the problematic ways that like the Western church or even your home church, right, was approaching the scripture? For one thing, we we didn't really talk about that mission statement at all. Like I would well, describe the church. they did. They just skipped right over it, didn't they? <laughs> wow. It's the spiritually oppressed. Yes. They spiritualized everything. I would say my yes. church was similar to the church of positive thinking, the power of positive thinking, the Norman Vincent mm-hmm. Peale kind of church. It was a country club church. And I talk in my book about the heresies that we grow up with. One of them is the country club church. Another is the prosperity gospel. If we follow God, then we'll get rich. If we don't, if we get sick, we're probably not following God closely enough. And so mm-hmm. we marginalize those who you know, are suffering. The other is the white nationalist, Christian nationalist, white supremacist church. Looking back at the history of America, we had a slave Bible that slaveholders created, right? Cutting out that whole section of the Bible around Exodus and all of the liberation passages so Mm. that slaves would not lead revolts. Literally took them out of the Bible. That's the thing that blows my mind is that they're all like, it's inerrant, it is true. And then they take the whole, like a whole book out of the Bible and say, this is it. Can you get more heretical than that? You literally cannot get more heretical than that. No, and And that there was this whole group of people who took the Bible so seriously that they were rebelling and leading slave revolts based on the book, the story of Exodus and Moses, leading people out that the Bible was that powerful, Yeah, but therefore they had to control it, right? They had to take it over. And that's what we have here in America with white Christianity. Okay. All right. So Renee, how about you? Most significant encounter with the problematic ways that our churches are approaching the scripture. Gosh, there are too many stories to tell. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think the, the one that's most problematic that I hit up against mm-hmm. is when people tell me or ask me, people ask me, why are you so reluctant to preach the cross of Christ oh. crucified? That is the center of our gospel. And I normally just reach into my wallet and take out all the money I have. I'm like, I'll give you all this money if you can find one place in the Gospels where Jesus proclaims the cross. I love that. <laughs> I says, got chills. Jesus went from village. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm losing control. <laughs> oh, my God. What? Okay. Go on, okay. girl. Keep going. <laughs> you, you read your Bible. And it says Jesus went from village to village proclaiming the gospel. Yes, that's right. Yeah. But it never says what he said for is, is actually a reading of Isaiah. Uh-huh. But then he also, um, the one time we do get what he says is Matthew 25. Like Absolutely. And also the Sermon on the Mount, right? So the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew 25, yep. which none of them have anything to do with the cross. Because the cross is the symbol of the empire. It's the idea of the empire. It's the ideology of the empire. Okay, it's now go on. for anyone who dreams about freedom. Oh my God. Oh my God. Wow. And so we read Jesus through Paul's words. Yes, that's right. And we make up, like we centralize sin and guilt so that we need the cross. Mm-hmm. And that we, the only way we can solve the problem of sin is the cross of Christ. Right. I don't right. deny that as a part of my faith. 
I do not deny the work of the cross, the power mm -hmm. of Jesus to forgive my sin, mm -hmm. and the power of the resurrection to transform all that is dead. Right. But right. the gospel is not a proclamation of the cross. Yeah. I just want to say, yes, I fully agree with you. There's an amazing book that was written by Rita Nakashima Brock, who was actually a, like one of the foremost liberal theologians who, in my estimation, she did an incredible amount of work on the scripture by going back to the history and asking what did the first century church actually think was the gospel? What did the earliest church think the gospel was? Because that's going to be a better indicator of what the gospel actually was. And what she found was she found an artwork that, you know how like we think of the ultimate symbol of our faith as the cross? Well, they didn't in the earliest church. You know what they thought of as the ultimate symbol of their faith? This was the symbol. It was the tree of creation, the tree of life. Because that tree is with us in the second chapter of the whole Bible and the very last chapter of the whole Bible. It's the thing that actually is the bread, right? Um, in the sandwich. And that's the symbol that they proclaimed back in the earliest church. So I resonate with what you're saying. My whole body lit up. I really did get chills. <laughs> wow. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road Podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. So, Jen, what was the motivation for you to write Who Stole My Bible? Well, how did you even come up with that idea to write this book? So we had been leading a lot of efforts to counter the Trump administration and its white supremacy. And my mm -hmm. first thought was, I want to write a book that talks about how, you know, faith, what strategies we can use, what strategies faith communities are using successfully to counter rising authoritarianism and white supremacy. And I was talking to a friend, a mutual friend of ours, actually, Lisa, Susan Barnett. I was trying oh. to figure out the structure of the book. Mm -hmm. And as we talked, she said, Jen, you light up when you talk about scripture. Like, I have never heard you this animated. And I said, yeah, the whole Bible is a handbook for resisting tyranny. And she's mm -hmm. like, that is it. That's it. That's your central thesis. Oh, my gosh. So, Susan's so good that way. <laughs> she's awesome that way. She yeah. just kind of heard me through, right? Cool. So often it's hard to find our voice, to mm -hmm. figure out what is that song that we're singing mm -hmm. within because the world tries to tamp that down, mm -hmm. often through gender and race oppression to mm -hmm. kind of silence who we are and to silence our truth. Mm -hmm. So I decided to write the book along the structure of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and to retell the story so that people could understand it better is a story about liberation, not only in terms of its vision and who God is, but also in terms of some of the strategies and tactics that we see the central heroes of the Bible using. Yes, yes. Oh my gosh, yes. So I do this training called Faith-Rooted Organizing that I actually did the first, I experienced the training first from Alexia Salvatierra. And now we've actually trained, we've both trained it together, even in South Africa a few years back. It's amazing that way. And one of the pieces of the training is actually to ask the question, how do we see in the scripture? How do we see God re recruit people for justice, for the justice movement? How do we see God move people through thresholds, going from cynical to joining the movement? How do we see the lots of different things? How do we see people in the scripture leverage narrative to actually help people to move closer in? So anyway, I'm wonderful. with you. That I'm is totally so with wonderful. you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I wanted, um, I felt like for so many people, this moment with the Trump presidency was so disorienting because of the way that the truth was bent. It's like our whole reality was both exposed once and for all for us to see who we are as a country and what we had not yet overcome because so many of us had gone to sleep at the wheel under the Obama administration and we, we thought we kind of, you know, were making progress. But it was also disorienting from the standpoint that we had a commander in chief who was trying very much to disorient us all. Yes. And so I felt like I needed and others that I spoke to needed a framework that could then help us both 
have analysis, but then also a way out. And mm-hmm. so what I found in scripture, even more than I realized I would, was a story about rising authoritarianism, not just coming from the outside, from the Roman Empire or from Pharaoh and Egypt, but also from the inside. I look at how King Solomon himself was the fulfillment of a warning that the prophet Samuel had given about mm. what it would cost to have kings yes, yes, to create authoritarianism rather than to be a kingdom of priests, rather a show of shared wow. leadership and shared spiritual power. Wow. And that for me was really liberating because as a child, going back to your original question, I remember mm-hmm. flipping through the children's Bible books with all those pictures and thinking, okay, this makes sense. You have all these humble people who are heroes and kind of rise up from nothing because of God's power. And then you have Solomon, who seems like the a disconnect with all yes, the other stories yes. in the Bible, right? Exactly. <laughs> and comes out of nowhere. Like, I don't like Solomon very much. I don't like yeah. the story. I didn't like Ecclesiastes, which begins with a kind yeah. of nihilism, like everything is meaningless. Yeah. And so coming to terms with that and what we were experiencing in terms of the Trump administration was very liberative for me. Wow. And maybe everything is meaningless because you have gathered everything around you and you have no meaning because you've filled your entire body and soul with stuff. With stuff. Yeah. That's it. And there's a sort of emptiness and a sort of braftness in this and how he had damaged his own family. Yeah. The apex of all of this is that he builds the temple with slave labor. That's right. Here is the God who set everybody free from slavery, set the Hebrew people free from slavery and said, okay, remember who I am. I'm the one who sets you free. Uh And then the nadir of that society is Solomon using slave labor. Oh my God. This temple to God. The thing that strikes me is that he was a consumer of stuff and people. So you don't stop consuming when you get to people. When you've trained yourself to consume, then the next thing to consume is people in order to keep consuming. And that's what he did. All right. So Renee, Renee, how about you? What catalyzed you to develop that How to Decolonize the Bible series of Freedom Road, which by the way, is still to this day, even it was our very first webinar series that we ever really launched, actually no, second webinar series we ever launched. And oh my Lord, like 150 people went through that webinar series live. But how did you even come up with that? I know that you were thinking about it for a long time. I know that I asked you to do it. But besides all that, what was it that was rolling around in your spirit that made you say, okay, yeah, I want to do this? I would say the biggest catalyst was the student uprising of 2015. Yeah, that's right. It started out as Roads Must Fall. In South Africa. In South Africa, Cecil mm-hmm. John Rhodes, his statue, there was a bust of his statue. And he was a colonizer and he had given the land that he had stolen to the <laughs> University of Cape Town. And so there was this statue in honor of him. And the students, the first symbol of protest was they woke up one morning and, and someone had taken human feces and spread it all over the road statue. Oh my gosh. Ew. Now, (laughs) it's beautiful, the symbolism, because where do you find human waste? Among people who don't have decent sanitation. Oh, wow. And so this symbol, this beautiful prophetic symbol, Uh happens and the students go, roads must fall, and they want the statue down. Yeah. And the following year, it progressed, the narrative progressed to fees must fall. Mm. We're in a country where 8% of the population is white. And you go to universities and about 8% of the population is black. What? And 8%? black students. Wait, I'm sorry, just real quickly. We really can't, we can barely even wrap our mind around that in the United States. 8% of the population well, of South Africa is close, white? Yeah. I'm really literally trying to wrap my mind around that because if that's the case, how in the world did apartheid even happen? Like that's That's another conversation. Very, very good question. Yeah. Steve Vigo says the greatest weapon of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. Wow. 
Okay, keep going, girl. Keep going. And so it's how you proclaim the gospel. It's why you have to centralize the cross. It's why you have to spiritualize Luke chapter 4. So that people don't have to think about justice. Right. Because they've said the prayer. Mm. And so how many people they slaughter does not matter. How many people they enslave does not matter. My surname is August. It means my ancestors were enslaved in the month of August in Cape Town by the British company. And they did that in the name of Jesus. Yes, they did. Without question. And then they declared the British government, with the blessing of the Queen, declared that 80% of the land in South Africa is for exclusive ownership of white people. Wow. Which Queen? Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Wow. Who proclaims Jubilee. I um, know. Oh, my God. And it was, I think, five or six years ago mm-hmm. when the last stats came out. More than 70% of the land in South Africa still belongs to white people. My God. Wow. And so we had Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela and the Great Struggle and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. but. The economic factors remain the same. And so it's virtually impossible for young black students to find enough money to travel in. You've seen where the townships is compared to where the Oh, my God, is. yes. That's right. To oh travel God. into a university and to pay for your transport, to pay for tuition when your parents have zero collateral. And so how is it that students just cannot afford to, black students can't afford to study? And white students drive into university with cars that their parents gave them or their grandmother gave them or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so they started saying fees must fall. And they did the work of deconstructing the education system. Right, right, right. In one of the conversations I had with, I think it was Loveland. Mm -hmm. Loveland is a friend of ours who is an academic. Yeah, um, she's incredible. She Our is leader. beautiful. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. She, she said, I think it was always said, once you commodify something, you decide who cannot have it. Mm. And so wow. commodifying education, you then decide who is not allowed to have it. And so mm. they were demanding free, decolonized tertiary education. Mm-hmm. In our mm-hmm. constitution, South Africa belongs to all who live in it, mm. irrespective of nationality. Mm-hmm. And the benefits mm. of the constitution applies to everyone who lives in South Africa. Wow. And that everyone has the right to free education, but they don't say what kind of education. So they provide free primary education. Uh-huh. And tertiary mm-hmm. education is commodified. Right. And so, like in the States. They consulted economists and, you know, people who really understood business and commerce and came up with a few suggestions on how the government can make tertiary education free Mm -hmm. for all students, not Mm -hmm. just black students. And in the request for decolonized education, along with that came some disillusionment among young people because they were fighting the system being beaten up by riot police, going to church on Sunday and listening to their pastor pray for the government mm-hmm. against mm. the students. Wow. Oh, and my. Wow. They came okay. to, many of them came to the conclusion they can't, we can't worship Jesus because Jesus has been colonized. And Jesus mm. is a colonizer and wants to colonize us more. Jesus is a colonizer and wants to colonize us more. My God. Because Jesus wants us to think about the sweet by and by and one day there'll be a mansion in heaven. They're like, we don't want a mansion in heaven. We want free education now. Wow. And so this is a, you need to think about this over a period of about three months or so of me engaging with students. And every time they kept on calling Jesus a colonizer. And I'm like, why do you say that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Jesus, do you know that Jesus is not white and blonde? 
Right. And some of right. some of them black students. What? Right. Right. Yes. Do you know that Jesus was born poor? Right. 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 And died poor. You know? And died Hello? poor. Do you know in a borrowed grave? Yes. He was buried. Do you know that in education in Jesus' time, those who were fishermen were the ones who couldn't afford, they were high school dropouts. They were the ones where you say, my love, you should try and do something with your hands. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Those wow. who got the equivalent of tertiary education are those who became rabbis and teachers of the law. Uh -huh. But if you were Jewish and you didn't make the cut, then you would be a carpenter, a fisherman, uh -huh. and look who Jesus recruits. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to tell them to go out and teach everything that I've commanded you. Mm. The teachers of the law ask the question, who are these uneducated fishermen mm -hmm. who have so much knowledge? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jesus did it. He gave free decolonized education. Wow. The most unlikely people. Wow. And there are questions around, so how do we understand protest as well? Like the, the Bible is full of protest, but Jesus' actions are protest actions. When Jesus reads that passage in Luke, that's a protest action. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Mm -hmm. Out of that, we don't, just, we don't just hear on a donkey, we hear what gate Jesus entered, what yeah, street right. Jesus went down. That oh. is a protest. Wow. The sacrament of communion is a protest. Wow. Wow. And so, wow. Communion as protest. Lord. Pregnancy. Yes. Mary pregnant with the living God. That's a protest. Pregnancy yeah. in the time of oppression is protest. Oh, it's my God. I choose to love. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we continued having these conversations and Bible studies, they've said, okay, you're messing with our minds now and we, we want to know more. <laughs> Help us understand how this mm -hmm. thing works. And so mm -hmm. I dabbled in, so how do we, what, are, what happened with colonization? Mm -hmm. And that's where I came up with, as I think about it, colonization is the reorganization of power. Mm -hmm. The reorganization of spatial power, political power, economic power, religious power, and social power. Mm -hmm. And then I asked, how does Jesus mess with that? Mm. How does Jesus reorganize power? Does Jesus? And how does Jesus? And I started reading the Gospels, looking with that set of spectacles, mm. what's the movement of power? And the rest, as they say, is history. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. We're living in the kinds of times that seed books, blogs, magazine articles, and op-eds that move the world forward. Are words floating in your head looking for a place to land? Do you need a safe space to write and share your work with other writers and receive feedback that helps to hone it, sharpen it, make it even better? Freedom Road is launching an international writing group online. Writers from across the globe will come together on Zoom, making space and writing in each other's presence, but in our living rooms, like good citizens do when we are social distancing. <laughs> then we're going to share what God poured into the world through us. Your one-year membership can lock in your spot in this international writing community, or you can pay month to month. Follow the link in the show notes on our website at freedomroad.us to register today.
has your hermeneutic changed as you've leaned deeper into the study of the scripture? I would say I'm learning that hermeneutics is so much more than the spectacles we wear when we read the Bible. Mm. Whether we're reading it through the spectacles of the movement of power or reading it through the spectacles of the environment or reading it through the spectacles of politics or you name your topic, poverty, wealth, who we read the Bible with is as important as reading the Bible itself. Mm. Mm -hmm. And where we read the Bible Mm. Mm. changes what we are able to see. Yes. Break that down. We could read the Bible with a group of people who look just like us, who Mm -hmm. share our worldview. And because Mm -hmm. of our worldview, we all have the same blind spots. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the moment we change out our spectacles or we spend time with people who live in a different place Mm -hmm. and have a different life experience, they are able to see, because we all do photo album theology. Mm -hmm. We're all looking for ourselves in the story. Wow. (laughs) And so how I see myself in the story is different to how you would see yourself in the story. It's different Mm -hmm. to how Jennifer would see herself in the story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then when we are able to share those perspectives, we come to a fuller, a richer, a more comprehensive picture of the scripture and an appreciation for the complexity. Yeah. You said something in our study, in our webinar series, that really stuck with me. You said that the study of scripture is not a project in trying to find answers. It's a project in trying to discover questions. You didn't, that's not a direct quote, but it's a paraphrase. Because what you were saying is that the scripture itself is not meant to be defined. And the reality is every time you come to it, you'll see something more. You'll see things you didn't see before. So the minute that you think you have it on lockdown, then you are controlling the scripture. And that for me echoes with what you just said in terms of it it changes the, the interpretation, what you more when you're able to read it with people who are not like yourself. And especially those who are in a different social location. Yeah. And you change the social location and suddenly what was always in the texts becomes alive. For Mm. example, liberation from slavery. In Cape Town, South Africa, there is a place called the Slave Lodge. I hate Uh that name because I don't believe that people were slaves. I believe that people were enslaved. That's right. Yes. They were always human and they were enslaved. And Mm -hmm. so in this lodge that tells the story of human enslavement you sit in that place Mm. and you have a look at the story that is around you and Mm -hmm. then you read the exodus story right oh my goodness and boom Mm -hmm. there's just same thing on robin island you yes, sit in yes. a prison cell mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and you read scripture there. And the, the, they are sacred places, thin mm-hmm. spaces that open us up. That we enter the story of a place and we allow the geography to become a character in our hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does two things, I think. One, it opens us up to the story, but it also requires of us to take the geography of the text seriously Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the life story and life experience of those, not only who read the text, but those who wrote it and when they wrote it Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. what made it possible for them to write Mm -hmm. and what people could possibly believe as they read those words Mm -hmm. and why they wrote it. Like, what exactly. are they trying to do by writing Yes, it? exactly. That's right. And yeah. so I think the last thing I want to say about hermeneutics is the point of hermeneutics is certainly not unity and agreement. Mm-hmm. I would like to say those two words are probably the most idolatrous words mm-hmm. in the church right now. Wow. Go on, girl. Go. Tell us more. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mm-hmm. We know in the early church there were more than four Gospels. But in the canonization 
of scripture. They, they settled on four gospels, not one perspective. Mm. And, and we all say, oh, it was a different audience. Exactly. Because words in culture of the people reading the text is as important as the culture of the people who wrote the text and who mm. received the text. Mm. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not arguing with one another. I mean, mm -hmm. John puts the story of Jesus clearing the temple in, I think, John chapter 2. Mm, mm, mm. And Matthew puts it much later, just as Jesus enters Jerusalem, mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. the crucifixion. And they are not competing for who's right and who's wrong. They're not looking for unity and agreement. They are appreciating different perspectives on the same story, Mm -hmm. And the difference comes because of the audience and the location and the culture of who that audience is. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Renee. Wow. Oh my gosh. How about you, Jen? So there are a couple of things I, I hear us saying that I experienced in writing mm -hmm. this book. One, the word of God really is alive today, right? There's this ancient spiritual practice called Lectio Divina. And yeah. it's that you read scripture and you listen to what scripture is saying to you, what words, what phrases stand out to you in this moment, because mm -hmm. it's not a static thing. But the second piece of what I have found that Renee has so beautifully described is that unless we're reading scripture from the perspective of those who are most oppressed by the structures of society, we do not understand what scripture is saying. And that mm. is the mistake that we white folks and European mm -hmm. folks have been making. We made Jesus white. We made Jesus blonde. And wait, before we, you go forward with that, can I just ask you to um, break that down? Because people need to know why that's the case. And you just mentioned it, skidded over that because Jesus was not white. But why does it matter? Like, why does it matter? Why does it matter? Why do you, why do we need to actually see Jesus as a brown man who was colonized and whose people were serially enslaved? Besides the fact that it was actually true, <laughs> that's the truth, but why does it matter in terms of how we then read that text? Because there's been an effort in European history, especially since Constantine and then into America to take scriptures and to make them about Christian dominance and Christian nationalism. So to turn Christianity into a religion that says white Christians have been blessed by God and need to control power in all the world. And we already alluded to that, of course, in the fact that they created a slave Bible and cut yeah. the portions out that were fundamental to the entire book. And that is the project of colonization, right? And this whole idea that white Christians of European descent control the world because God has uniquely blessed them and Jesus is a white, blonde Messiah is what has shorn up white supremacy, which is also the economic structure right now of our globe, right? We mm. can't understand our economy today in America, for example, without understanding that our economy is a racial capitalist economy. It is a patriarchal and white supremacist economy that profits some by exploiting those on the basis of gender and race. And that's what we have. And yet we try wow. to celebrate ourselves as a democracy. Right, right. And, and the more, yeah, the more we understand that history and understand that it's not just political, it's also economic. Mm -hmm. the more we'll be able to start to understand actually what our biblical text actually says to us. Right. Wow. Okay. What is the most dangerous myth about the scripture or scripture study that needs to be called out? I mean, I think we've been tackling it and that we mm -hmm. have to read the Bible from the underside of history or from those who are experiencing oppression. But what's the myth? How would you characterize the myth? The myth itself? The myth? Yeah. Yeah. So the myth is that the Bible is a pietistic rule system through which we must live pure and holy lives. And that that is separate from societal and communal change. Okay. Okay. How about you, Renee? That was good. A mine is similar. So the first, I would say, is a myth that the Bible was written by and for white people. Mm -hmm. When in fact, the Bible was written by and for 
people who were enslaved, people who were exiled, and people who were occupied in their own land, foreign occupation, and who were oppressed. And who were brown. Yes, that's who the Bible was written by. Mm -hmm. It's who the Bible was written for. And it's the context in which the entire story plays out. Mm -hmm. The only Mm -hmm. European to have a contribution to the Bible is Paul, Roman citizen. Wow. Virtually everyone else is Middle Eastern. I want to just make that make something. I want to just say Paul was, he was a Jew in Rome. He was a Roman citizen, but he was not a person of European descent. Yes. Let's put it that way. Exactly. I'm I'm just saying that. You're being generous. I'm saying that to to just frame the context. Okay. Who wrote the Bible and who was it written for? Mm -hmm. Not white people. That's the first myth. The second, as Jennifer says, if you want to understand it, you can't use a white worldview to understand it. You, You have to go to the places and the context of the people who wrote it to begin to understand what it mm-hmm. could possibly mean. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is one you and I have spoken about just the other day, and that's the parable of the talents. Oh, yes. Uh, that God is happy mm. with, has designed, authorized, and ordained economic inequality. Mm-hmm. The wilderness yeah. story, the manna mm. story, is a complete violation of that myth. Mm. I think that you also do an incredible work with the story of Joseph. Can you go into that very quickly? Because I read and studied Joseph for years and preached on it. And I did not come to the same conclusion that you did because I didn't ask the same questions. And you asked these really like amazing questions that got you to a place I'd never heard anybody go before. So please share that. Share that with us. Joseph, uh, the Technicolor Dreamcoat, of course, yes, yeah. was favored <laughs> and sold into slavery. And so we, the first story of enslavement, human enslavement, is, is Joseph is sold into slavery. Wow. And we, we constantly read in the Genesis story that, he, you know, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. God's favor rested on him. And so he has promotion and then ends up in jail and then there's a little bit of hope and then, you know. But what happens to Joseph, like I would say, we see happen with many people who come into proximity to power. And so in some ways there's a need to recognize that there's a system at play here. Mm -hmm. But Pharaoh has a dream. Joseph is in prison and his dream about seven lean cows and fat cows and lean corn and whatever. Joseph says in his own words, only God can interpret this dream. Mm. Mm. And he goes and he asks God and God gives him the interpretation and he gives it to Pharaoh. And he says to Pharaoh, we must build barns. We must build barns and store the grain. In the Mm. years of plenty, we must store the grain so that when there's not enough in the lean years, we will have enough food for everyone. Mm. And then in chapter 47, the people of Egypt were hungry and they came knocking at Pharaoh's door to ask for food. And he said, go and ask Joseph. And Joseph says, give me all your money. Joseph sells the food, their own food. Joseph sells it's, to oh, them. Wow. And then, like two, three verses on, it says, and the following year came around and they were still hungry. And they went to Joseph and said, give us some food. And Joseph said, give me all your livestock. And so Joseph gathers all the money and all the livestock in Egypt for Pharaoh. And then the following year they come and they say, Joseph, we are hungry. And he says, give me all your land. And then the following year they come. And Joseph enslaves an entire nation. Joseph, who was enslaved by his brothers, goes ahead and enslaves an entire nation. And we know that God is not neutral on the issue of slavery. Right, Jennifer? Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so... He um, does to them what was done to him. Exactly. That's so deep. That is deep. My God. And... Can I just say, 
real quickly, my, my God is in part about the fact that I've never heard anybody, anyone read this like this before, bring this out before. I think it's your context in apartheid South Africa that gives you the eyes to see this. Keep going, my sister. Yeah, the the problem with Joseph right in the beginning is that his dreams are interpreted by his brothers. And they say, "Are are you wanting to rule over us? If we don't interrogate, question, and demonize dreams about ruling over people, Mm. then we create myths that God sanctions. Mm. Oh my God. The ruling of others. Wow. Now there's a book, the very good gospel (laughs) that I highly recommend. (laughs) Excellent book. (laughs) Oh my goodness. And and in it, when we look at our origin story, you see Mm. each one of us are created in the image of God and each one of us is given dominion. Yes, that's right. And where the image of God in us is marred in any way, shape or form, we declare war against God. Mm -hmm. And that's what Joseph did on a national scale. My God, my God. And the picture in the Bible story of the story of Joseph is very often a very beautiful, colorful coat. Yeah. Right. That's right. Damn. Wow. So what Renee is like, one of the things you're doing for me is like, you are being so like honest with scripture. Like so often, like we don't read it from the right standpoint, from the standpoint of people who are experiencing oppression. And then we don't read it honestly because we've, um, at least I was taught this like white supremacist version of the Bible that flattens the stories and turns everybody in the Bible into a hero. So Solomon's a hero, Joseph is a hero. And there are all these things that don't match up with that and don't comport with that. It doesn't add up, but we're not allowed to wrestle with the text and to ask questions of it, not allowed by our churches. I remember one time I was teaching a workshop to women who were concerned about women's rights. And I was going into hermeneutics. Nobody knew what hermeneutics was, the lens through which you see the text. Mm-hmm. And a woman looked at me in awe and was like, does my pastor know about this? <laughs> yes, your pastor knows about this. And you better go back to your church and say, why the hell didn't you tell me about this? That I am supposed to read scripture with a lens from marginalized communities. And you've been reading it with a white German European lens. Mm. Mm. I have to say one of the reasons I left my last church was because every single Sunday I would go and I would be pissed when I walked out the door. Every single Sunday for two years. I gave it two years, y'all. And the reason why I was so mad was because every Sunday, I mean, I don't know it was the Lord who was causing these things, like the stars to align. But every Sunday when there would be somebody preaching on a sermon, one of the pastoral team be preaching on a sermon. And I would have just written on that passage for sojourners or having to do with some kind of justice issue and digging into what are the different political implications? What was the political situation in the day? What was the context of this actually, of when this was written? And, and the pastor or somebody on the pastoral team would make it about how to get ahead at work. Uh, right? Uh, or how I'm serious. I'm very serious. Mm, or, I believe or, you. Or, or how to have a better love life. I swear to you. <laughs> I'm like, oh, like my head was ready to explode every Sunday for two years. And then finally I just said, you know what? I can't do this anymore. <laughs> mm, mm, I can't do this anymore. Mm. So, okay. So I have a couple of last questions for you. Sorry, can I just make one comment on that and just yes, say yes, yes. there are people who leave church when I preach and they mm. are <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's wow. That's, this good. Way, son. Good. That's good. You That's right good. Thing. Yes. So people are gonna be pissed either way. So pastors need to figure out this is the the call. The call is to figure out who you're gonna be pissed with or who's gonna be pissed at you. Is it going to be is it gonna be Jesus, brown, colonized, serially enslaved Jesus who is pissed at you because you've gotten his word wrong? Or is it gonna be the rich young ruler? who wants to remain rich and young and ruling 
and decides to walk away? Are you trying to please him with your sermons? Who is at the center Mm. of your church? That's right. Who is at the center? Who are you preaching to? Mm -hmm. Who are you preaching for? Mm -hmm. And also, anyway, sorry, got a little excited there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So last question, y'all, last question. How would the world be different? No, I'm sorry. I have to ask two questions. My bad. We're going to start with that question, but then I'm going to ask the last one. How would the world be different if we read the Bible through the lenses that you've talked about and the ways that you've talked about? In other words, why does the Bible matter in the here and now? I'd say we'd live a life that is less afraid. Mm -hmm. Because we won't be living with the problem of scarcity. Mm. I don't have enough. Mm. Mm-hmm. We will be asking questions about how we work so that you can thrive. My friends, Craig and Liesel, who you know, have a drawing in their hallway as you enter their home. And it is of the sun and the sky. And for them, that's their symbol of their relationship. And the question mm. they ask is how can I be sky for you? Mm. Wow. How can I create space for you to shine? Mm. 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 Because it immediately removes the narrative of the I and the individual. Mm. And brings us back into the story of God that is a communal story. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I just think all the fear, all the anxiety, they are industries, psychology, mm-hmm. pharmaceutical industries, all kinds of industries built around the fact that we live afraid mm-hmm. that we won't have enough. Mm-hmm. 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 That I won't have enough. In Hunger Games, may the odds always be forever in your favor? No, mm-hmm. may the odds be forever in our favor. Mm, mm, mm. And, and so I think, wow. I think that's mm. what would happen. Wow. I love that because the scripture decenters us and centers God. That's if right. If we let it. I completely agree with Renee on that. And if we mm. think about what we're up against with the powers and principalities of the world, there are these other ideologies that we often are taught must be supreme pragmatism. Oh, no, we can't possibly like do reparations, could we? It would be too expensive. Yes, we can. If we truly believe in God's vision of abundance and making repair and healing the world to Kun Alam, then yes, we can. Yes, we can figure out a way to do that. A number of years ago, the Catholic Congress person, Paul Ryan, House Speaker, revealed that he was having his staff read Ayn Rand, the political philosopher who hated Jesus because Jesus called people to sacrifice and to love Mm -hmm. one another. Mm -hmm. At the same time, he spoke to his Catholic faith as though he were a devout Catholic. And so we called out the hypocrisy of that. Mm -hmm. And that's another vision that a lot of conservative Americans hearken to, this sort of libertarian live and let live, while at the same time purporting to be Christian. It doesn't Mm -hmm. add up. And so it it comes down, how many times does the Bible say, fear not, perfect love casts out fear. We're Mm -hmm. living in an environment of fear and false scarcity. We just, Mm -hmm. here in America, we just passed this COVID relief bill and Republicans were screaming that it's going to cost too much money. It doesn't cost too much money. It actually lifts everybody up. And in that bill, we applied a racial and a gender equity lens. We lifted up Black farmers who've been discriminated against forever Mm -hmm. and a day. And we put Mm -hmm. billions of dollars into helping them get where they should have been Mm -hmm. decades Mm -hmm. and centuries ago, but they were discriminated against. And Mm -hmm. that is going to actually help all of humanity, everybody in this country. And so that's the Mm -hmm. vision that scripture lifts up. And it's truly radical, which is why people try to hijack it and take it away from us. How can churches begin to study the scripture, you know, in a way that brings life to their congregations and into in the world and in a way we haven't seen yet? I mean, I, I love Renee's thought of we need to go to the communities, 
that are most experiencing these systems, and we need to read scripture from that perspective. Uh, we need to with sit them. alongside them with them to yeah. have them speak to us and to read the scriptures through that lens. I think that's one of the ways that we need to go at it. We also ah. just need to not be afraid to teach people the right tools for reading scripture. It actually, I think there are a whole set of people who have convinced us that if we read scripture in the way Renee and I and you are talking about, that it's somehow getting away from the importance and the high view of scripture that we should have, you know, as God's word. Wow. I think this way of reading the Bible actually takes us deeper in our faith, deeper yeah. into alignment with what God wants, That's and it right. actually enlivens our faith. It has made me a stronger Christian. You know, when I went to seminary, a friend of my dad's told him, your daughter better not go to that Princeton seminary. She's going to lose her faith <laughs> because they taught these tools, these lenses, these hermeneutics. It deepened wow. my faith. Yes, there were a lot of things I had to wrestle with and undo, including the sexism I had been taught growing up. I actually mm -hmm. lost my relationship with my father over time because mm -hmm. it did upset the apple cart. Mm -hmm. but, but this is actually what's going to make us stronger in our faith and our closeness mm. with God. I love that. How about you, Renee? I think we need to, before we think about that question, we need to look at the vested interests here. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't take that seriously, then mm -hmm. this project is not going to go anywhere. At the moment, there are, I would say, there's the man of God with the word of God. <laughs> mm. The word for the hour. Mm -hmm. But if we are reading the text, what do we need preachers for? <laughs> wow. Wow. The unemployed the preacher. preacher. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Churches, buildings could close. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those who have studied and paid to go to seminary and they could be without jobs, mm -hmm, actually. Mm -hmm. And so there, there is a vested interest in making sure that this doesn't succeed. Mm. And so I would say how we get our churches to read is literally just to do it. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dult of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for our updates. We promise we will not flood your inbox. Really, we don't do that. But we do invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first day of each month. In the meantime, join the conversation on Freedom Road.